Amen. Church, I'm excited to get into today's message. If you would, join me in 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's going to be our passage of Scripture uh, this morning. We're just over halfway uh, through a series of messages on faith and doubt uh, that lines up with the Alpha groups that are meeting uh, through uh, the week, talking about uh, reasons to believe. And I hope that the, some of the messages in this series have been helpful for you if you're not sure whether or not you believe, you believe, or for your friend or family member who's unsure if they believe. I also hope that it's been helpful for those of you who claim to be believers in Jesus Christ. Because I know that even if you are a believer, there are doubts that you struggle with. There are issues or questions that arise that you have a hard time with. And I think it's healthy for us to acknowledge that they're there. I think it's healthy for us to recognize that we ourselves have our own doubts and that as we, we question those things, as we find answers in God's word and through his spirit, that our faith can be strengthened. Um, this past week, a balloon uh, flew or floated overhead, and everybody was in an uproar, right? Um, when I heard that there was a balloon that was going to float over southern Illinois, southern Indiana, and Kentucky, I said, there ain't no way that's going to make it. It's, it's going to get shot down. A good old country boy is going to take that thing down. I didn't realize how high up in the air it was. Uh, it was out of range of your rifle and shotgun blast. Some of you figured that out uh, from personal experience, didn't you? <laughs> Uh, people were upset that our government didn't shoot it down. People went out in their yards. They watched it fly overhead, right? And we came to know or to believe that it was from China. It felt like, hey, they're, they're spying on us. And what's interesting to me about this is that this balloon floating overhead and seeing exactly what Google Maps can see of how many Dollar Generals and CVS pharmacies we have here in the U.S., that that was, that was an outrage to us, that we were offended by this. But probably right now, in the phones, in a majority of the pockets in this room, there's an app called TikTok, which is known to be made by China and is known to be made to be incredibly invasive of your privacy. We were upset about this thing floating overhead, this outside foreign object, when reality is that if China is spying on us, it's right here. It's right in our own pockets. You know, it kind of remind me of about 70 years ago now when Sputnik was put up into space and Americans were terrified, right? The Russians are going to know all of our secrets. They're going to be able to drop things on our heads, right? Americans went out that night and they watched Sputnik arc across the sky. They were angry that the Russians could have this thing out there. And we know now that really the danger was that Russia had spies infiltrating our society, our culture, our government, our military. We were worried about this thing out there, but the real threat was something much closer. And I think believers, oftentimes we think that the threat to Christianity or the threat to the Bible is something out there when really it's much closer. It's right here. And today we're going to talk about reasons that we should trust the Bible. And this is important because from the very beginning, 
Satan has caused us to question, what did God say? Because when Satan tempted Eve in the garden, what he said to Eve was, did God really say that? And he uses that same tactic today to tempt you to think, did God really say that? Is that really what God said? And I hope that today you walk out of the service with a greater confidence that what we have here is truly what God said. If you would, look with me at verse 14 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. 2 Timothy is the last of Paul's letters that he's written. And he's writing this from prison near the end of his life. He's writing this letter to Timothy to encourage him to come and see him, to bring him some things that he needs, to visit with him perhaps one more time before Paul is executed. He tells Timothy here that he is on trial and that the trial is not going well. But this letter is not just a personal one. It's not just a request for Timothy to come and see him. He's also giving Timothy instruction on how he can stand against the false teachers in Ephesus. People who were attempting and are influencing the members of his flock, the people in his church, to believe things that are not from God. And so what Paul says to him is, Timothy, you must stay strong in what you have been taught from the Scriptures. You have been taught from a very young age the Word of God. So hold fast to this truth. And there in verse 15, he says, You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Today, you and I, those of us who call ourselves believers, we identify as Christians. We should be people who do so because we have put our faith in Christ Jesus. You shouldn't identify as a Christian because you do the right things. You should identify yourself as a Christian because Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin. And you've put your faith in Him. And that makes you wise unto salvation and then he goes on to say what happens after this is also made possible through the Scripture. Verse 16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable or valuable for doctrine, for reproof or rebuke, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul is telling Timothy, the way you stand against error, the way that you stand against falsehood, is the same way you came to know Christ, and the same way that you come to be complete in Him, or transformed or sanctified in Him, it's through the truth of the Scriptures. Now today, in our culture, there are a lot of, of really prevalent or common reasons or arguments against believing in the Bible or trusting the Bible. And I want to talk about a few of those before we get to the reasons why I think that you should trust the Bible. 
The first one I think we hear a lot, maybe not spoken outwardly or this, this clearly, but there's kind of this idea is that, that science has disproved the Bible. Now, this mainly comes from the idea that science has disproved that God exists. And we've talked already about the fact that really the more we learn about science and mathematics, the more we learn about physics and relativity, the more we realize that there's things in this universe that we just can't explain. That our laws of nature cannot capture what is really happening and has happened in our universe. There's this idea that real scientists don't believe in God, but the truth is that the percentage of scientists who believe in God has not waned or decreased. Because people who are working in the fields of science and mathematics, they're regularly confronted with things that just seem divine or beyond explanation. Now, it could be that maybe you don't think that science has disproved God, but you think that science has disproved the Bible. Because there's some people who are critical of the Bible as it's not a book of science. Um, and that's true. The Bible was not written to be a science textbook. But what I think we find in the Bible is that it does not contradict science. A couple weeks ago, when Pastor Eric was preaching, he talked about there was a, a point in time where people believed in a geocentric view of the solar system and universe, that everything rotated around the earth. And then people began to understand that, no, it isn't that the sun rotates around the earth, but rather the earth rotates around the sun. We went from geocentric to heliocentric. And there were some people in the church who they couldn't understand this idea of the sun being in the center because they were holding on to passages of scripture like Psalm 113, verse 3. From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. Now there were church officials, people in the church, who fought against this heliocentric view of the solar system because they said, listen, Psalm 13 says that the sun rises. Now, that language isn't making a scientific observation. It's just using the language that you and I use every day, right? We say things like, what time is the sunset? What time is the sun coming up tomorrow, right? And when you say things like that, nobody goes, you moron. The sun doesn't rise. The earth rotates around the sun, right? No, because it's language that we use. But there are examples of the Bible being scientific beyond its time. For example, when God makes a promise to Abraham that his children will be like the stars in the sky, which are innumerable. Now, at that time, when God made that promise to Abraham, there were people who were charting and categorizing all of the stars. And it was a long process, but they were able to, to name and, and categorize them. But now we know that there are stars well beyond our ability to see. And so this idea of the stars being innumerable or beyond what we can comprehend was not a concept that was familiar at that time. Another one that's in Paul's writing from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He talks about how the sun is one glory and the moon is one glory and the glory of the stars differ from one another. Now, perhaps some of you in here, you are amateur astronomers, right? And you can tell like constellations and that kind of thing. I can't really do that. I'm not that versed in it, right? 
But for most of us, even if you can tell which stars are which and which are constellations, even you have to say, they all look pretty similar, right? But now we know from research, from investigation, that all of these stars are incredibly different. The Bible was not a science book. It's not a science textbook, but it doesn't contradict science. And in fact, it was well ahead of its time scientifically. Another common one is that the Bible is just so outdated, it's irrelevant. And there's really two subjects that this typically comes up about. Jesus' culture that he walked in was incredibly different. And the ones that we really struggle with today are the Bible's views on slavery and gender roles. Now, the reason that we struggle with this idea on slavery is because the Bible says in Ephesians 6, 5, slaves obey your masters. And that just sounds horrible to us. Because when we hear that, you and I picture slaves on plantations in the South being held against their will and whipped and beaten, killed, bought and sold by their masters. Now that slavery, that type of slavery existed back in Jesus' day, but it was not common. What was more common was people would sell themselves into slavery. In other words, they would sign up and say, I will join myself to this household and work for it, and you will feed me and shelter me. And usually they could work themselves out of it faster than you're ever going to get out of that mortgage that you've indebted yourself to, right? They were less slaves than some of us in the contracts that we have signed. And so when Paul is saying, obey your masters, he's not saying, obey the person who kidnapped you and murdered your family. He's saying the boss that you have agreed to work for. The Bible's pretty clear on its thoughts of murder and kidnapping. That's not something that the Bible is in favor for. Now let's talk about the one that you're perhaps bracing yourself for, gender roles. Most people think of the Bible as really old-fashioned especially when it comes to a woman's place in the home or in culture or in the church. But I think what you find when you read the New Testament is that for the day that Jesus walked in, women were given a great place of importance. It's incredible that when the gospel writers sat down to tell us the story of Jesus' resurrection, they tell us that the first people to show up on the scene were not the disciples or the apostles. It was a group of women. The first people to share the news that Jesus rose from the dead was a group of women. You read the book of Romans, and what you find is Paul, at the end in chapter 16, lists all of these people who are central in their roles in serving and leading the church, and there's a bunch of women who are serving in that role. For that day and age, God gave a place of service and a role of importance to women that was unheard of anywhere else. Now what has happened is that while culture was here and the Bible was here, culture has moved and the Bible has not. But we don't interpret the Bible based on the current position of culture. We interpret culture and we understand the world around us based upon the truth of God's word. So even if 
something were to happen and our world turned upside down and people in the Middle East took over control of our nation and tried to set the roles of women back not 2,000 years, but 6,000 years, our belief on the importance and role of women would not change. And I know that it might not seem as contemporary as we'd like or would be comfortable for you, but God's word is true regardless of its day and age. And it gave this place of importance and recognized the worth of women 2,000 years ago when no one else would. Now, it's important for us to take a moment here and talk about the fact that our interpretation of the Bible is not dictated by where we find ourselves in current culture. Just recently, I listened to a pastor, someone whose books I have read and sermons I have listened to, talk about how he was changing his position on a current hot-button topic because of what he has learned from people that he's been around. What's happened is the current culture has overridden what he knows to be said in God's word. We believe God's word to be God's word, and we hold it paramount. And so it is the fixed position that we hold no matter what culture is doing around it. We continue to interpret our world and our culture based on the truth of God's word because it is God's word, not the other way around. Another common argument against the Bible is that it's historically inaccurate. In 1952, this guy named Steve Sanders came up with, there's really three specific tests that you determine if a document is historically accurate. First of all, does it even claim to be? I mean, if something just isn't claiming to be fact, there's no reason to hold it to be fact. God's Word does that. The Bible does that. Two, that's internal. Does it claim to be fact? Two, external. Do contemporary documents support it as fact? What we find is that Roman and Jewish historians who wrote history during the time that the accounts of the Bible took place is they give us accounts that line up with what happens in Scripture. Josephus is one of the most famous of these. He was a Jewish historian that was hired by the Romans, the Greeks, to catalog what was going on. And he gives us all of this evidence of John the Baptist and the life of Jesus and his brother James. And there's all of this contemporary evidence that the facts in the Bible did take place. There's the external, there's the internal, and last there's the bibliographical, and we'll get to that in just a moment. In addition to passing these three tests, the Bible also passed the archaeological test. Um, in this book, on page 399, so this is 400 or so pages of different archaeological finds that have happened, there's a story of a group of excavators uncovering a plaque. And if you look in your Bible, there, right where you're at in 2 Timothy chapter 3, over at chapter 4, and I believe it's verse 20, there's a mention of a guy named Erastus. He's also mentioned uh, in 1 Corinthians, and he's mentioned there as the chamberlain or the treasurer of the city. And what these guys found when they were doing this uh, archaeological dig is they found a plaque, like you might see on the corner of a building. 
The church that I attended in Virginia Beach, when it was built, they put a plaque up and said this building was erected in this year for the glory of God. Now, we don't have one of those on this building because we'd have to have like eight plaques because it was a building and a building we added on so many times. They found a plaque similar to that one that had been cast and iron and had bronze laid into the letters. And what it said in that, in Latin, was this building erected by Erastus with his own money. Now, if you were treasurer of a city, there's probably sometimes you want to make sure everybody's aware, I didn't spend the city's money on this. I spent my own money. But there's just one example of a guy that Paul knew and mentions just kind of out of hand and that he was the chamberlain of the city. And then they find someone in the same area And this book is just full of coincidences like that. And while there are all these coincidences, there are no archaeological finds that contradict the people and places and events of the Bible. So the Bible passes the internal, external, bibliographical, and archaeological test. The last one that I'll talk about, the last argument that people have against believing the Bible, is the Bible was written by men. And I can relate to this, because I know some people, you know some people, and what we know about all of those people is they're imperfect, right? And all of them have disappointed us. And whenever there's a person involved, there's opportunity for shortcoming. But let me ask you this. What would be a more believable scenario for us to get the Bible than for it to be written by people as God led them? Like if I told you, hey, you guys are not going to believe this, but I was walking through a field and this book hit me on the head. It fell from the sky. Would it be more believable to you? Listen, you're not going to believe this, but I found the writings in this book written on the side of a cave. What would be more believable? What would God have to do? How would he communicate his truth in a way that was believable to you if I told you that it was written in the clouds in the sky? We believe what God did is what this passage of Scripture talks about. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. We believe that the words that these men wrote, they wrote as God inspired them. Right now, you're hearing my voice. And my voice is produced by the air in my lungs being forced over my vocal cords. And my brain knows how to push that air out at the right frequency and pressure and move my vocal cords to form the words that you're hearing right now. And they're being caught by this microphone and then reproduced over the speakers and recorded and put on the live stream, right? But the words you're hearing aren't so much being produced by my vocal cords or the air in my lungs or the speaker system or the live stream. What you're hearing are the thoughts that are being produced in my mind. Hopefully inspired by the Spirit and reflecting the study that I've done. But you're hearing those thoughts being formed. And my vocal cords and the speakers and the microphones are all just instruments for conducting that. We believe that the men who wrote the Bible were just like the vocal cords. The wind was from God. 
the breath was God's and the ideas and the thoughts that those vocal cords produced were his. They were merely instruments to capture, to record, to write what he was leading them to write. And I believe this to be the case because of what I've seen these words do. I believe this to be the case because there are so many reasons to trust the Bible. First of all, there's preservation. When they would record God's word, they would they would write it down. They would copy it from scroll to scroll. And when they were done, they would count the letters for both scrolls and make sure that the middle letter on both of them was exactly the same. If it wasn't, they would destroy that scroll. In 1947, a Bedouin shepherd stumbled across some bottles in a cave. What he found would become known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Not too long before Sputnik flew through the air, they find these bottles, and in them they find 600 different copies of passages of Scripture that people have written down, and they agree. I talked to you earlier about the bibliographical test. That's how much similarity there are in all of the different copies of an, of an item. And one of the documents that we have from antiquity is the Iliad, written by Homer. And that's kind of like the, 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 the one that everybody accepts. Because there's 643 copies that agree. We have other historical writings like Plato's Republic, which has seven copies. and Aristotle, we have five copies of his work. Caesar, we have ten so the most accepted non-biblical historical writing we have is the Iliad with 643. We have over 24,000 copies of the New Testament. When you compare that against any other historical writing, you find beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Bible stands alone and passes the bibliographical test. Paul says here in 2 Timothy 3.15, From a childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul reminds us that these Scriptures are what have given Timothy the gift of salvation and changed his life. And here in this room and churches around the world, there are people who are gathering today and worshiping, and their life is completely different than it was five years ago, 20 years ago. And it's because of the words of Scripture gave them the gift of salvation. In the 1920s, there was a Lutheran minister by the name of Frank Buckman. He was leading a ministry in the inner city. It was having an impact on people's lives. They were feeding the poor. And so someone made a large donation to this ministry so they could continue feeding the poor. And Buckman had a disagreement with the leaders of that ministry because they wanted to use the money for something else other than feeding the poor, which is why it was given. This disagreement became so sharp that Buckman left angry. He left the ministry. He went and he spent time in England, and while he was in England, he went to a conference, a revival service in Keswick, England. And there he heard Jesse Penn Lewis preach a message on forgiveness. And her message on forgiveness so impacted him that he realized that God had forgiven him and he ought to forgive others. 
And so he sat down and he wrote letters to each of the people he had had that disagreement with back in the States to reconcile with them so that there would be nothing hanging in the air between them. And that forgiveness and letting go of that resentment so changed his life that he realized that people all around him needed to know just how powerful forgiveness could be. And so he started forming groups of people who would gather together and they would hold one another accountable to forgive those that had wronged them and to make amends to those that they had wronged. These groups became incredibly powerful. They were so powerful they became popular and they were referred to as Oxford groups because that's where some of the groups first started. Not long after that, two men came to an Oxford group. They had both been struggling with alcoholism. They were trying to break free of their addiction to alcohol. They went to an Oxford group. And these men, who are now referred to as Bill W. and Dr. Bob, they experienced such freedom in forgiving those that had wronged them and making amends to others that they took that same concept and the same material and they wrote it specifically as a curriculum for alcoholics and they called their group Alcoholics Anonymous. And there are people in this room and people around the world that have experienced freedom from their addictions because of that truth and that powerful concept which can trace its roots back to Jesus' sermon on the mount. And all around us when you see a hospital or a university or a school, you see the fingerprints of the Bible's impact upon our culture. Not just in the lives of individuals, but in nations and in cultures all around us. So when Paul says to Timothy, the way you fight this heresy, the way you fight this falsehood, is to simply believe in the truth of God's word and it will have this impact. Continue to stand on that and commit it to faithful men who will teach others also. But this impact, it's not only a story that's contained in God's word. These life-changing principles are not just something that you can find in all of the information that's in the Bible. It is the whole point of the Bible. You see, the Bible is an incredibly consistent document. Now, if you were to go into my laptop and look at all of the sermons that I have preached over the last 17 years as a pastor here, you'd see that there are some topics that I like to preach on more than others. And though, even though I'm really trying hard to give you a full catalog of God's Word, there's some things that just get laid on my heart more regularly than other things, Right? And if you've been attending here for some period of time, you know that I have my hobby horses and things that I'm tempted to talk about on a pretty regular basis, right? Now imagine if I was sitting down to write the Bible and there was just a few things I really wanted to make sure that everybody knew. That's what it would all be about, right? What we have in God's Word is we have a document written over the course of 1,500 years by 40 different individuals. And instead of going all in their different directions of what they wanted to talk about, it's all about Jesus. There's a picture I want to show you up on the screen. What this picture represents is it's all of the books of the Bible broken into chapters. And so each time there's a new book, it changes slightly in color down here. And each one of these lines is a different chapter of the Bible. 
And the longest chapter in the Bible, being Psalm 119, is right here near the middle. And so every chapter in the Bible is represented, and the longest line being the longest chapter. And every one of these lines that goes up above is a cross-reference, a place where God's Word refers to another place in God's Word. And the longer arcs are lighter colors, and the shorter arcs are darker colors. And what we find in God's Word is that there's 63,000 cross-references And all of that, all of that consistency is about Jesus. It's pointing us to the cross where Christ died for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Recently, I was talking with some friends who someone they knew had passed away and they didn't know about it until months later. Now, used to, Everyone read the obituaries in the newspaper, and that's how you knew there was a funeral. Most of us don't take the newspaper anymore because we're not interested in what's there. It's old news. And so obituaries are now put online. They're on Facebook. But I don't know about you, but I'm not just really interested in obituaries that much. I don't read them very often. And so Facebook serves me what I'm interested in. Social media and the things that we have on our phones are constantly serving us what we're interested in. More and more of that. So for some of you, that's nothing but cat videos all day long. For some of you, it's memes. For some of you, it's political rancor. And there are really as many Facebooks as there are people on Facebook. There's many, as really as many Twitters as there are people on Twitter because it just serves us the thing that we want. Forty different men across generations in three different languages, men who were rich, men who were poor, men who were kings, men who were fishermen, they wrote the Bible. And instead of giving us 40 different interpretations of who God is, they give us one, Jesus. The one who is able to give us salvation. The one who is able to show us the belief in Christ changes our lives. I believe the Bible because it's been preserved I believe the Bible because it's historically accurate. I believe the Bible because it has its fingerprints in powerful ways all around us. But mostly I believe the Bible because it consistently points us to Jesus who changes our lives. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord, I ask that you would work in our hearts this morning, that our faith would be bolstered, And most importantly, Lord, that we would see you. Lord, may we make scripture a priority in our lives so that we might know you and know your salvation. Work in our hearts. Silence our doubts. Lord, help us to recognize when Satan tempts us and tries to lead us astray and questions, did God really say God, forgive us when we want to interpret your word based on our cultural moment or our personal bias. May our minds be shaped by your word. May our view of the world be founded in your word. And Lord, most importantly, may the truths found here introduce us to you and to your salvation through your son. 
We pray these things in your name. It might be that in this moment you need to respond to the Lord by calling on him, recognizing you need Jesus. Or it might be that you recognize in this moment that God's word has not had a priority in your life. It hasn't shaped you or impacted you because you don't engage with it and that needs to change. Or perhaps you're just thankful this morning. Thankful that God's word has had such a powerful impact on you. It's changed you. It's given you freedom from your addiction, your sin. It's restored your relationships because the words here are so very powerful. Whatever the need is in your heart and life, as we remain in this spirit and attitude of prayer, would you respond to the Lord as he works in your heart this morning?